Well, if you have a Bible, please uh, turn to Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, please uh, look on with the person next to you. I'm sure they won't mind. The inspired record of Jesus' birth is contained in the Gospel of Matthew and also in the Gospel of Luke. And if we read carefully both of those accounts, we'll notice that after the announcement confirming the birth of Christ, after that announcement came from heaven, It was confirmed on earth by various people who spoke to Mary at different times and each one gave testimony to the unique identity of the child to be born. For example, Elizabeth gave testimony that Jesus is the Lord in Luke chapter 1 verse 43. The shepherds, they repeated the words of the angel that said that Jesus is the Saviour, Luke chapter 2 verse 11. Simeon, he bore witness that Jesus is the Christ. Luke chapter 2 verse 25, verse 26, sorry. Anna, she spoke about the Christ child as the Redeemer. Luke chapter 2 verse 38. And the wise men, the wise men who came from the east, we read about them in here in Matthew chapter 2, and they tell us very, very clearly that Jesus is the King. Matthew chapter 2 verse 2. Now, of course, Herod had a very different view of that. An opposing view, even as there are many opposing views about Jesus today. And it is these contrasting views, the the view of the wise men, the view of Herod, this contrasting view that I'd like for us to consider this morning. There are two very simple points on your outline sheet today. First of all, let's consider the worship of the wise men in verses 1 to 12. As the New Testament begins we see that that was the time when Rome ruled the world. And even though Rome was in charge overall, they left a local guy to be king of Israel, to keep the peace and to keep the taxes coming in. Verse 1 tells us that when Jesus was born, it was in the days of Herod the king. Verse 1 also tells us that sometime after Jesus was born, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Verse 2 saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now notice verse 1 tells us that these men were wise. They were intelligent. They were educated. They were sensible. And if the king of the Jews had been born, it made sense to them that he would be in the Jewish capital. But they discovered that he wasn't there. And so they started asking around and eventually news that these strange foreigners looking for a newborn king, that news had reached the palace. Verse 3 tells us when Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Verse 4, and when he gathered together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where the Christ was to be born. And that was an easy question for the religious leaders. They knew their scriptures back to front. They knew what God had promised about the coming of the Christ through his human messengers, the prophets. And they knew what God had told the prophet Micah 700 years before. 
Verse 5, they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, but out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Verse 7, Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. He was guessing that the wise men had sighted the star when the baby was born and he wanted to know how old this Christ child was by now. Verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go search diligently for the young child and when you found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Verse 9, When they, when they heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so finally, they found the one who they had travelled so far to see. Let me ask you a question. <clears throat> Do you know who came to visit you when you were born? Do you know who came to visit you when, when you were born? According to my mum, I was visited by my dad, my grandparents, some aunties and uncles, and a friend or two. In other words, I was visited by people who are basically members of my family or others who were in the hospital anyway. And as far as I'm aware, Queen Elizabeth was not even informed when I entered the world. And professors from Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard didn't pack their bags and charter a private flight to come and pay their respects. And once I got home, at no stage did the then Prime Minister, Sir Robert Menzies, or the Premier, Robert Heffron, knock on the door and ask my parents if they could give me very, very expensive gifts. Of course they didn't. That would have been ridiculous. Foolish for them to do so. The powerful and intelligent people of 1963 would have been crazy to have dropped everything to come and see baby Glenn fall down on their knees and worship but that's exactly what these wise men did to Jesus. Now, we don't know a whole lot about them. We're not exactly sure where they came from, except it's from the east. We don't know exactly how many there were. We suspect that they were astrologers, but we're not absolutely certain about what they did. The title wise man is a translation of the Greek word magi, which suggests that they were some kind of professors or scientists or perhaps both. But what we do know is that these men travelled hundreds of kilometres for months and months and months with expensive gifts to see a baby, a baby born in a tiny town in an insignificant country at the furthest reaches of the empire. And what we do know is that when they got to the house where Joseph and Mary were staying with Jesus, these prominent and intelligent men got on their knees and worshipped this child. We are come to worship him. They told Herod, and that's exactly what they did. Now, to some people, that sounds ridiculous, foolish, crazy. And it would have been if it hadn't been for the fact that this child was different. 
Verse 2 tells us that this child had been born king of the Jews. Verse 4 tells us that in seeking for this child, they're actually seeking for the Christ himself. Simeon said he's the Lord. Elizabeth said he's the saviour. The shepherd says he's the uh, the shepherd said he's the saviour. Anna said he's the redeemer. He's the incarnate son of God, the angel told Mary. He's the word made flesh dwelling among us, said the apostle John. He is God with us, said the prophet Isaiah. He is a baby who is God in human form, said the apostle Paul. Now, I don't know about you, but I struggle to get my head around that. that the God of eternity who knows everything, who controls everything, becomes a baby that needs changing and feeding and carrying. My mind can't work that out. But then again, there are plenty of things that I don't understand. Like the fact that light can travel from here to the sun in 8.3 minutes. That's a speed, according to Google, of 300,000 kilometers per second. And my mind can't comprehend how something can travel that fast, but it does. And similarly, we'll never understand how God can travel so far from his throne in heaven to the womb of a woman in Israel, but he did. The angel said unto Mary that this baby shall be called the son of God. And God came to earth as one of us to live in a world that he created. And though these wise men weren't Jews, they knew that this child mattered to them too. If this Jesus is the Christ, if he is God in human form, then what these wise men did isn't ridiculous, foolish or crazy, is actually very sensible. If Jesus is the Christ, if he's God incarnate, then the right response is to worship him. And that goes for us too. If Jesus is the Christ, if he is the king, if he is God in the flesh, then it is right that we would imitate and copy the response of the wise men, which is to worship Jesus Christ. Now, what does worship mean? Many of us have the idea that worship is what you do corporately when you come to church on Sunday. That's what we're doing today. As we gather together, we, we sing praise to the Lord, we pray to the Lord, we read God's word, we listen to God's word as it's read and as it's preached. And worship is all of that. But that is not the total of what it means to worship the Lord, as these wise men show us. Worship includes giving up our time for Jesus, as these wise men did. Worship means putting ourselves out for Jesus, as, as they did. It means seeking more knowledge about Jesus, just like they did. And to summarise those three things, it means letting Jesus shape how we use our days, how we use our minds, how we use our wallets. In other words, it means letting Jesus be at the centre of our lives. And crucially, it means accepting that Jesus is the king, the ruler, the sovereign authority of our lives, just like these Wise men did. Now, a lot of people think they have to be quite stupid to worship Jesus. But these wise men would probably say that it is wiser to accept that God became a man called Jesus. It's wiser to accept that than to just ignore him. And it's wiser to accept that if we can't understand everything about Jesus, 
That's not because we are so clever and everything about Jesus is just rubbish. Rather, it's because he is God and we are not. And perhaps the wise thing to do is to look at the evidence and think things through instead of dismissing anything to do with God's anointed king. Who incidentally was prophesied in the Old Testament, not just in the book of Isaiah, but also in the Psalm, Psalm 2. It's all about Jesus the king, who God himself sets on in Zion, verse 6. The king who breaks the nations with a rod of iron and dashes them in pieces like a potter's vessel, verse 9. The king who other kings should serve with fear and trembling, verse 11. The king who other kings should kiss in reverence, lest he be angry with them, verse 12. The king who will execute judgment upon the nations, Psalm 110, verse 6. And if Jesus is the Christ, if he is the promised king, then the wise thing to do is to worship him with all that we have. Just like these wise men did. And just like wise rulers have been doing ever since. Queen Victoria, who was a British monarch in the 1800s, ruled over a third of the world. But she said she couldn't wait to meet Jesus. Why? Quote, so I can cast my crown before him. See, she recognised that even as one of the most powerful people in the world, she had a ruler. One who deserved everything, even her crown. But not all rulers react to Jesus in the same way. And as these wise men bowed down to Jesus in Bethlehem back in Jerusalem, one king was planning to do something very, very different to Jesus. And we see that in verses 13 to 23. We see here the, the opposition of Herod. When these wise men found Jesus and bowed down and worshipped him, at the end of verse 12 it tells us they departed into their own country because the beginning of verse 12 tells them that they were warned of God in a dream. They should not return to Herod. And they weren't the only people leaving Bethlehem. Verse 13 says... That when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there till I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. This is where the Christmas history gets very dark. Verse 14 tells us that Joseph did as he was told. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wrath and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he diligently inquired of the, the wise men. Herod's orders were carried out to the letter. And in a moment, Bethlehem and its environs were overwhelmed, verse 18, by lamentation and weeping and great mourning with women, women refusing to be comforted. It was a massacre. But Herod failed to achieve his aim. Jesus was safely on his way to Egypt. Verse 15 says that he was there until the death of Herod. Verse 19 tells us that when Herod was dead, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go in the land of Israel, for they are dead, which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother, and came in the land of Israel. Verse 23, 
And he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth. And so for all the joy surrounding the birth of Jesus, there is this horrific, this shocking twist, this slaughter of the innocence, a brutal, cold-blooded murder of what probably would have been dozens of children in an attempt to kill Jesus. And the question is why? Why did Herod dislike Jesus so much that he wanted to kill him? Why was Herod prepared to kill any number of little boys just to ensure that he killed one particular child? Well, the answer to that question is one that we may not like because it does involve us. And the answer is that it had everything to do with a turf war. Herod was king of Israel. It was his country. This was his kingdom. He ruled it. Yes, he ruled under the Romans, but most of the time he could just ignore that fact. Israel was his. But now this Christ had been born. God's king of the Jews had arrived. And ultimately Israel belonged to Jesus, as does the rest of the world. But Jesus had a greater claim to be the ruler of Israel. Not the Romans, not Herod. So Herod had to make a decision. He, like Queen Victoria did 800 year, 1,800 years later, could accept that Jesus was king over him. He could submit to Jesus' authority. He could enthrone Jesus at the centre of his life. He could allow his life to be ruled by Jesus. He could give his turf, Israel, his kingdom to Jesus, worshipping him as the Christ, or he could resist Jesus. He could fight Jesus. He could push Jesus out of Israel so that he could carry on being the one in control, being the only ruler. Sadly, Herod chose the second option, tried to get rid of Jesus. And that's why Bethlehem's children were slaughtered. That action of mass murder was motivated by Herod's attitude of refusing to let Jesus be the king. This is an attitude that the Bible calls sin. It's the attitude which resists Jesus' rule, which would rather that Jesus didn't exist, which would refuses to accept that Jesus is God's Christ, the rightful ruler of our lives. It's the attitude which says, this is my turf, Jesus. This is my kingdom, not yours. I'm in control, not you. I won't let you have it. I'll fight you. I'll resist you. I will oppose you. Now, Herod had a lot of church turf. The whole of Israel. And I, I don't have all that much, but I do have my own life. And in my life, in what I do and say, it is very natural for me to think that I'm the ruler. And I instinctively say, this is my turf. This is my life. This is my kingdom. It's mine. Except that if Jesus is Christ the King, if he is God's 
son who created me and created the world in which I live, then actually my life belongs to him. And he has the greatest claim on how I should live and what I should do in his world. He has a greater claim than anyone else. He has a greater claim than even I do. So when it comes to the control of my life, the kingdom of my life, the turf of my life, I have a choice. I can accept Jesus' rule and worship him as my king, like the wise men did, or I can resist and refuse and oppose his rule like Herod did. And naturally, instinctively, subconsciously, consistently, I unfortunately choose the second option. I want to rule my own life. That's sin. And because I was brought up to have manners, I can even do that quite politely. Sometimes when Jesus, when what Jesus says happens to agree with what I'm already thinking then that's okay. But at the end of the day, I want to be in charge of my life. I act as if I'm the king, not him. I act as if he doesn't exist. He's never born or is actually dead. Now, it's a hard truth for me to admit. And it's a hard truth to realise that this is basically what all of us do naturally. When it comes to the desire to rule our own lives, we are all mini Herods. Now that doesn't lead us automatically to ruin people's lives through committing mass murder. But in refusing to let Jesus be our ruler, it does cause us to sin against others in perhaps less noticeable ways. The person that we laugh at. Shattering their confidence. The person that we gossip about, damaging their reputation. The person that we trod on at work to get that promotion, who's now twisted by bitterness. The person that we simply never notice or unconsciously ignored and consequently feels rejected and lonely. The little things that we do each day or don't do each day, which make the lives of others round about us a little le less satisfying than God wants them to be. Now, I wish that this didn't describe me. I wish I could look at my life truthfully and say I've never acted in any of those ways or similar. But if I'm honest, I know that I can't. And I'm guessing that you can't either. All of these outward actions and many others are all the result of an inward attitude, an attitude that looks at our life and looks at Jesus Christ and says, this is my turf, Jesus, not yours. I won't let you have it. It's a hard truth to accept. But it explains what we see happening in the world round about us and explains what we sometimes notice in our own hearts. We're sinful. Just like Herod. And just like Herod, we're fighting a war against the law that we can't win. Herod must have thought that he had all the power. He had all the resources. He had priests to advise him. He had scribes to inform him. He had soldiers that would kill for him. 
But he couldn't do what he wanted. He couldn't kill Jesus off because compared to God, Herod has no power at all. God was in complete control of this situation in absolutely every detail he could. He was so in control, he could organise an immaculate conception. He was so in control that he could influence governmental decisions and legislation. He could mobilise people. He could guide the star in the heavens. He could send angels. He speaks through dreams. He moves his son to safety. God is in absolute control of the situation. And Herod tried hard to get rid of God's king, but he couldn't. And by the time that Joseph brought his family back to Nazareth, only one of these two kings was still alive. And it wasn't Herod. The kingdom that Herod had killed to keep was taken away from him. I wonder what God said to Herod when Herod died. I wonder if Herod tried to find a way to excuse how he treated God's son and how he sinned against others as he fought against God's son. I doubt that there's anything that Herod could say. And like Herod, we can resist Jesus' right to rule our lives throughout our whole life if we choose to. And it doesn't matter how powerful we are, we can't resist him forever. And just as it did for Herod, the time will come for us when we die. And I wonder what you're planning to say to God beyond your death. Is there any possible excuse that you'll be able to offer of how you treated God's son, how you sinned against others as you fought against the Lord? I don't think it will help us to argue that our actions weren't as serious as others or that we at least did some, things among, some good things among the bad or that we actually did think about Jesus from time to die and, time and actually believed that there was something special about him. Our sinfulness means that none of us deserve a place in the kingdom of the Christ whom we have consistently rejected. There will be no in eternity enjoying the eternal pleasures of all of his goodness, which the best things in this life are only a tiny glimpse. Instead, there'll be an eternity outside of his kingdom, enduring an existence with nothing good in it at all, of which the worst things in this life are only a slight glimmer. This is the hard truth that makes death something to be terrified of. It's an unpopular truth, but it doesn't stop it from being true. We all need rescuing from the consequences of our rejection of Jesus. And that is why it is great to remember what the angel said to the shepherds in the field. They said, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour, which is Christ the Lord. You see, Jesus wasn't only born to rule us. Jesus was also born to rescue us. And actually, it would be the, at the end, the end of his life, not the beginning, which would help us to understand what the angel meant. It's quite ironic when you think about it. God the Father was in control at Jesus' birth. birth. So Herod's attempts to kill Jesus therefore failed. 
And God the Father is still in control at Jesus' death, which is the only reason why the religious leaders' plans to kill Jesus were successful. The Most High God was in control of every detail and he was in control three days later when a group of women went to the tomb early in the morning to anoint the body of Jesus but they didn't find a body. Instead, just as the young Mary had seen 33 years before in her home in Nazareth, these women at the tomb also saw an angel. Matthew 28 verses 5 and 6. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, as he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay. Verse 8. And they departed quickly from the sepulchre with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. Verse 9. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him just as the wise men had done 33 years before. Mary knew what it was like to see her son die. But amazingly, she also knew what it was to see her son rise from the dead. And God's plan was also that his son would be born as the Christ and would be the ruler and would die to be our saviour, our rescuer. And that he would rise to eternal life beyond death so that he can then forgive those who trust in him. And he can welcome those who trust him as their saviour and worship him as their Lord. Matthew in his gospel gives us the details of Jesus' birth. As does Luke. Mark does not. Mark starts his gospel in chapter 1 by telling us about the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And the first words that Mark record as being said by Jesus, sum up why Jesus was born and why he died and why it matters to each one of us. Mark chapter 1 verse 14. Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom. This is the first thing he says, verse 15, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Jesus is the king. The king has come. Entrance into his eternal kingdom is now offered to all. What do we need to do? Jesus says two things. Repent is the first thing he says. Repent is a military word. It means about, about turn. To repent means to turn about completely. To be part of God's kingdom. Now and beyond death. Jesus says you need to repent. You need to turn away from living as the ruler of your own life. And turn to him and allow him to be the ruler of your life. Repenting means giving your life to Jesus. Worshipping him. Letting him call all the shots. Looking to him to make all your decisions. Leaving it to him to tell you how to act. Repenting is a great thing to do. It means that the ruler of your life is no longer someone who doesn't know much about life. And who knows absolutely nothing about the future. That is you and me. Instead, the one who is now in charge of our life is someone who knows everything about life and who controls the future, and that's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Repenting is a great thing to do. It's also a hard thing to do. It means you simply don't go on now doing what you always want to do, or what's easiest to do, or what's most popular to do. It means that you won't be in charge anymore of your diary, of your wallet, 
or of your heart. It means that there will be times that you disagree with what Jesus says, but you will obey him anyway. And also mean that there seems to be times when you're actually missing out on something, but you now understand that the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in heaven. Heaven makes all the difference. Repent, Jesus says, and believe the gospel. Believe the good news about Jesus Christ, that he has come into the world, that he was born for us, that he lived for us, that he died for us, he rose again for us, he's gone to prepare a place for us, he's coming again to receive us. This is the good news about Jesus, which we're told, commanded to believe. You know, everyone trusts in things. You're sitting in church this morning. You're currently trusting in that chair, believing it's going to hold your weight. If you're sick, you trust the doctor and his prescribed remedy. You believe the medicine will, take, will make you better. If you're working for a living, you trust your boss. You believe that you'll get paid. What are you trusting in for your death? Who are you, who or what are you trusting in that will sort out death for you? Maybe it's yourself, you're trusting in yourself. You think you've been a pretty good person, everything will be okay. Or maybe you're trusting in an idea. The idea that there's nothing on the other side of death, so there's nothing to worry about. Well, Christians believe the good news about a person. Someone who knows what's on the other side of death because he's been there. Someone who knows how to get through death because he's done it. Someone who can forgive sin because he's willing and able and worthy to bear our sin for us. The good news of the Bible is that Jesus has done everything necessary to give you eternal life in God's eternal kingdom. And you don't need to try to gain it yourself. You don't have to try to be good enough yourself. You don't need to go to church a certain number of times or to, 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 to live out these rules and rituals. Jesus says you need to repent and believe the good news about Jesus. You need to give Christ his rightful place. Trust that he's done it all for you. That when he died, he died in your place, taking the punishment that you deserve. That when he rose, he rose to give you a new life. So when Jesus calls us to repent and believe, he's calling us to accept that he is our ruler. The one who's in charge of our life and he is our rescuer. The one who will save us from our sin. And bring us through death. So my question is... And these are the, the opposing views that we consider. My question is, what are you going to do about Jesus? Are you going to oppose him, resist him, as Herod did? Or are you going to repent, repent and believe on him, give him his rightful place as the wise men did, worship him? Maybe you need to think these things through a little bit more. Check out some of the facts. Ask some questions. By all means, do that as a matter of priority. But it may be that today is the, the fullness of time for you. Maybe the time has come for you to make a decision today. To repent and to 
believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe the time has come for you to tell the Lord Jesus that you're ready to allow him to be your ruler and that you want him, you need him to be your rescuer. Why don't you speak to him about that now? Would you allow me to help you with that? Would you allow me to lead you in prayer at this time? Please, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the good news concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. Lord, I do pray for anyone here today who needs at this moment to make a decision for the Lord Jesus, about the Lord Jesus. Lord, please help them to, to pray, to acknowledge, yes, Lord, I am a sinner. I can't save myself. I'm in need of a saviour. I need the Lord Jesus to save me. I desire to give the Lord Jesus Christ his rightful place as my rescuer, but also as the ruler of my life. Lord, I've made a mess of my own life and I've hurt others in my opposition to you. Lord, thank you that there's forgiveness for me because of what Christ did upon the cross. Lord, I pray that you take control of my life. Lord, help me to live my life for you. Thankfulness and gratitude that you gave your life for me. Thank you that you died for my offences and was raised again so that I could be justified, forgiven. Heavenly Father, I do pray if there might be someone here that would be willing to pray that way today. Now, this day would be a very special day, a very significant day for them. A day when they become a new creature. Their life changes dramatically, turns around completely. Oh, Lord, this is our prayer. A prayer for others today is, Lord, that we might uh, rejoice together uh, in the remembrance of what you've done for us. Lord, pray that you forgive us for the times that we uh, want to be the boss of our own lives. Lord, I pray that you will help us to, to dedicate ourselves again, anew, afresh, to being your submissive servants, to being ambassadors for Christ, to letting Christ rule and reign over all of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.